Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Hello, everyone. We are back. It has been a pretty wild last couple of weeks. We got two episodes out rapidly, and then, of course, we took a bit of a break in order to attend Otakon. But this is episode 157 of the Anime World Order podcast. I am Gerald Rathgulb, and with me, as always, this is Daryl Surratt. And this is Clarissa. We are back talking about anime and manga and all of that good stuff. Please feel free to email us with your questions at animeworldorder at gmail.com or go to our website at animeworldorder.com. We have been dealing with some movement of the blog as we move things from host to host, but I believe that is all settled now. It's all gone through. Now the site will stay up. I have not gotten the errors that we've been plagued with for the last seven plus years of not having the site load. Now things like basic functionality work. If you leave a comment, I once again will get an email notification of such basic things that should have worked a long time ago that didn't. We now have a much more reliable blog web hosting. The podcast file hosting remains the exact same as it's always been. So hopefully nobody really noticed that there was a change in hosts for like a couple of days. Right. But yeah, do go to the site because it costs slightly more, but it's <laughs> worth it. I think we've learned over time that how it generally seems to work is you take a web host and they're great for the first maybe few years. And then after that, they just sort of slack off because they just don't care after a while. But anyway, let's dig into some of this mailbag that we've got. We've got plenty to talk about, but this one came to mind. This is by Jacob, and it's just titled Adult Anime Question. He says, Greetings, Anime World Order. I was recently pondering this when I was talking with one of my friends about the legal consumption of anime and manga products. Over the last decade, it amazes me how much has changed in both accessibility and support from fans. But there is one area that has pretty much remained unchanged, which is hentai or H. Dojin material. This makes me wonder, considering that most etchy series that have come out in the last few years are barely a shade or two off from hentai, basically saying that they're almost straight-up pornography. Not to mention the sheer amount of people I've seen at conventions, especially from what I have heard at AX, that buy the stuff. I do realize that there is a small handful of companies like Faku and Right Stuff that try to legalize these materials, but in a lot of ways, it still feels like it was back in the mid-2000s with fan subbing and piracy being the status quo. I guess my two big questions for those, is there such a demand for these products, why has no one created the crunchy role of hentai yet? The closest I have ever gotten to an answer was from ANN's Hey Answer Man, Justin, who cut his teeth in this material when he worked for CPM. His response a few years ago was a documentary he watched which said, It's not worth it. Do you think at any point it will become legally accessible beyond the small handful of titles that get released every year? My other big question is, why do people not treat it as an art form, much like the rest of the anime industry? I realize this material... I have a clip from The Office which suggests otherwise... <laughs> 
It's called hentai. And it's art. And it is and art. It's art. <laughs> <laughs> I realize this material has a stigma behind it, even among the anime community. Even the few websites that write or talk about anime will deflect it as laughable garbage. But the people who work on this stuff work just as hard as the rest of the anime industry. Yet there are many individuals who have worked in the industry at all levels and that have transitioned onto mainstream anime and manga. Thank you for your time. P.S. Could you review Katanagari for a future podcast? It's an interesting... Katanagatari. Katanagatari. Yeah. We'll get to that at some point. But it's, uh, this is an interesting idea, and you might be able to answer this question yourself by just saying why there isn't a Crunchyroll of hentai is like, is there a... Ne- Do you there, pay for porn? Is there a Netflix of porn? Right. And I mean, that's the thing is that the landscape of how people consume pornography in general is nowadays consolidated to one company that pretty much owns every porno site you can think of, whether it's the streaming sites or the membership ones or the big or the big like production companies as well. Like they own everything. One company owns all of these things. What they don't own is the Japanese animated porno. No. And so the infrastructure, much like how when Gerald does his panels on anime and non-anime and talks about how our general media is consolidated into a couple media groups, with regards to porn, it's even worse. One place <laughs> owns pretty much all of it and dictates thus the minds and psyches of the world. And they hide in the shadows and they change their company name a couple of times to throw off the scent. But that's basically the way it is. But what interests me is that they notice exactly what our listener has noticed, which is to say that people at conventions in person will spend money on getting this material, whether it's doujinshi, whether it's DVDs, keeping John Cirabella off the Yakuza, (laughs) you know, whatever you want. This stuff sells money, and they're one of the few audiences of people willing to still spend cash money on porno. I, I imagine that, right? Like that you, you pay money for this stuff when it's so impossible to avoid for free at this point. Right. But that main company has sort of noticed, hey, these people buy this stuff and are actually changing actual live action porno to match what like anime otaku wants which is very strange and yet all that other stuff is delivered in like a crunchy roll streaming sort of service of course splintered across multiple places and also the streaming youtube style sites and what have you but not anime and so that's sort of the conundrum there right if we know that people will pay for this stuff in print and whatever why isn't there the website version of that well, I mean, Faku kind of is that for manga now. I mean, yeah. it's a subscription service. Right. And Faku, I believe, has a deal with, uh, I forgot which publisher it is, but yeah, they simulpub or simultranslate several anthologies and interestingly, a bunch of doujins as well. I mean, they've been around a yeah. very long time. I think it's they've only around... original doujinshi though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the other part is a big part of how this sort of stays under the radar is that it's only physical items being transacted and that once you put this stuff online and then charge money for it, and it's like, hey, you don't own those characters. Right. That's maybe another portion of right. it that maybe Japan is a little more lenient to, but once you actually set up an English language service, now you're dealing with worldwide copyright holders of people who are now going to have to clamp down on your unauthorized usage of these characters. I mean, of course, Right Stuff is releasing physical releases. And interestingly enough, Soft Cell, which it's strange, 
Soft Cell, the anime company, which goes back, that might be the longest. That was like ADV's imprint. That was right? ADV's pornographic imprint. And what's hilarious. Right. ADV films back in the 90s. What's hilarious is ADV did not survive, but Soft Cell has. <laughs> and Soft Cell is actually back, and they're releasing just a small few things here and there. You know what one of the longest lasting companies in anime is? Is one that nobody thinks about, and that is adult source media. They are still around, still releasing stuff. None of their stuff has got any appeal to the anime audience. Like, I don't know anybody who buys their stuff. They release stuff purely to the pornography industry. What do they release? And, and even they, well, even that industry is literally decimated, as in like cut down to like one-tenth factor definition of decimated yeah. with regards to physical media sales because of everything we just talked about as far as one company kind of monopolizing the internet with this regard. How many times do people go to stores to purchase discs that people can find? At the very least, people are hesitant to even download porn and have it on their computer. They want no paper trail or evidence. So that's <laughs> why, you know, these websites with the streaming proliferate so well. But I mean, even like you said, I mean, even in the regular like U.S. porn industry and a lot of stuff has gone on to like amateur stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, also streaming type things, not physical media, mm -hmm. but adult source media deals in physical DVD releases. Right. They don't have a streaming service. Yeah, what's interesting about them is if you go to their site and like look at what they release, they release some bottom of the barrel sort of stuff. And they also do the thing that no other publisher of anime porn ever does, which is they release compilation films. This is extremely popular. Like this is what has kept them going for, and I kid you not, like 15 years. Again, like one of the longest lasting anime publishers out there. Like, right. And they don't have like any additional revenue stream besides that. It's not like they're cutting the deal with the hotel chain to put your cartoon porn on one of the pay channels. They might. I don't know. Bill it yeah. to like the company credit card. Right. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, they have just been surviving for such a, a long time. It's an unusual industry because, again, the, the company you're talking about, Daryl, is, of course, MindGeek. They own everything. For now, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've changed their name a few times. Yeah, they own, by the way, just in case you think they don't own something that you watch, they own browsers, they own RedTube, they own YouPorn, you name it, they own it. They own so much, they actually own websites that compete with each other, so you don't think that they own it. But yeah, they don't own the anime side of it, because it's just so fractured over there. So uh, yeah, they, they are trying to get into that. They're trying to do like cosplay stuff, which is interesting. Yeah, again, that's another thing, like I'm saying, is that they noticed that the otaku audience is into this type of thematic material and are sort of incorporating this sort of like incest elements into regular <laughs> mainstream porn and cosplay and, you know, getting hooked up as the con and, you know, all these kinds of stuff is now seeping into regular pornography. I mean, you got scenes where people are having sex in those artist alley fleece hats. Hentai fans have long been into NTR or Naturare and now in mainstream porn cuckolding is so ubiquitous it's now a normalized slur conservatives throw at people even though they are the primary consumer but to the point of like when justin said he watched the documentary and basically boils down to it's not worth it it is particularly true that anime fans don't really in their mind think of internet naughty cartoons as something that they pay money for i mean you've got any number of very well established websites 4chan and all the rest mm -hmm. you know there's dedicated sites now in addition to that like donbaru and stuff like that where people can just go and then filter by infinite tags to infinite <laughs> specificity to get what they want for free 
And it's very difficult to roll out a service that would compete with that, especially because you won't be able to go and say, well, I need this particular Korean or Japanese drawn Overwatch pairing. It won't be able to go on the site because then, you know, you're in trouble legally. Right. More so than the people who do this stuff, you know, would be otherwise. And so let's address his second question. Why isn't this stuff seen as sort of an art form? And I guess you could almost apply the same sort of thinking to that as you do to regular porn. Yeah, like, that's just what? how America is. Explicit sexual material just isn't given the same amount of consideration. There's no barrier to entry. Literally anyone can create porno, whether it's live action or drawn. And so it's very difficult for there to be like somebody to sift through and be like, oh, this one's actually good unless they transition over into the mainstream anime manga scene. It's like, oh, that person must have been talented, you know, whatever. Just because the mere flood of material is like very difficult for somebody to actually gain a footing just from making adult works. Well, unfortunately, it seems like the pathway of quote-unquote success is to start, off doing, is porno. start off doing porno and then to get eventually a yeah, get a following and then eventually do like etchy or like naughty shonen or seinen work that is mediocre at best. Right, like what's his and, face, the Tenjo Tenge Oh, great, author. yeah. Oh, yeah. great stuff. I think his stuff is kind of mediocre. He did absolutely beautifully drawn pornography, but he transitioned out of that into mainstream work and has found way more success in doing, yeah, Tenjo Tenge and he did Air Gear. I don't know what he's doing now. I mean, a more contemporary example, I recently reviewed Food Wars Shokugeki yeah. no Soma, mm -hmm. which is about to enter its third season of anime. I'm totally looking forward to it. And the artist for that, Shun Saiki, we started off under a different pen name. Tosh was his name. But now he doesn't need to really go back to doing porn unless no. he particularly wants to. Though I get the feeling that he probably just wants to because Food Wars may as well be. <laughs> it's like, so lewd. <laughs> Yeah, it's, and it's for kids, too, which is the best part of it. Yeah. But yeah, it's still one of my favorites. It's still great. But yeah, his success level, you wouldn't have yeah, it's gotten huge. on the radar if he hadn't started off doing porno. And then when he goes into Food Wars, he largely keeps a lot of the same character designs that he used for porn. So it's like he pre-made the doji right. for it. And then yeah. also like... Arrowgay and like BL games, it's like yeah. they'll adapt it, but most of the time they adapt it and then they just cut out all the sex so that they can sell it to a wider and then audience. It's more successful. Yeah, because a wider yeah, audience like, will buy it. And then if they want to, they can go and get the dirty stuff. Yeah. What fascinates me about recreators is they added a character who was from the anime version of something that used to be porn that is now not right. porn. That's like <laughs> the new recreator's character. And again, the premise of that is characters who are so popular that they must come into the real world to exist. Right. I mean, another... It's only once you are no longer porno. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right? that, uh, Daisuke Sato. I don't think he's a household name, but he, you might know his work, High School of the Dead. Another, like, way more successful. You can tell he used to draw yes. porn. Yeah. Right. Like, Kota Hirano, it's like, okay, you definitely used to draw porno, Kota Hirano. Whether it's the character in High School of the Dead named Kota Hirano or the author of Helsing and Drifters, Kota Hirano, you can definitely take one look and be like, this person is a pornography artist. <laughs> is doing way more success with High School of the Dead, even though I think that is kind of boring and lame, than he ever did with any porno that he ever made. That's the thing, is that there are incredibly accomplished directors and animators and artists in hentai. But the end result of their work is that it needs to get you sexually excited. It doesn't have to appeal to you in any sort of deep way. 
when the motivation of it is this very sort of animalistic instinct that it needs to evoke, it's not going to necessarily get the respect. respect. Like, even though I really think that some of the stuff is just gorgeously drawn and really well done. Yeah. And I think that there is an art to creating something that's erotic. That is difficult to do. Just find some random pornography online and chances are it's bad. (laughs) Really bad. Oh, man. Like, most of that self-published erotica stuff on... And actually, not even just the (laughs) self-published stuff, like... I realized, like, I was spoiled by fanfiction because I would read, like, excerpts from, like, actual quote-unquote literary fiction that's supposed to be erotic, and it's so bad! It's so bad. They're all, like, on the caliber of, like, when Bill O'Reilly would write, like, (laughs) his erotic thrillers, and you'd read, like, these sex scenes written by Bill O'Reilly, like, that's effectively... Oh, no, I don't think I ever read one of those. Probably for the best. Oh... Like I said, there is an art to this, and it is not easy to do, but of course those people don't get any sort of notice or respect. But so, and l- outside and yeah, of- it's just because, like you said, it's a similar thing for, like, say, why don't fanfic authors get respect? Yeah. It's because it's very hard to find through the innumerable sea of absolute garbage, oh, this person is really great. Maybe one or two people can find that person and recommend it through word of mouth, but for them to get the traction... Mm-hmm. They need just heightened visibility, which is why maybe you start off writing like your erotic fanfic, but then you get a book deal and then you change the characters a little bit and alter the book cover and then you put it out on the bookshelf and then people will be like, aha, this person is cool. And then grandmothers read it and then you title it Fifty Shades of Grey and it's garbage. (laughs) Except Fifty Shades of Grey is terrible, but yeah. Right. I was trying to diplomatically not bring up Fifty Shades of Grey or that other one with the artwork cover where everyone was like, oh, this is ripped off from whatever. It's like, wait. Maybe it's the same person. But, I um, love that, like, supposedly the author of My Immortal actually, like, came out and was like, no, it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> Definitely not me, guys. <laughs> wink, wink. Oh. Yeah, I mean, luckily, one of the nice things on Archive of Our Own is, like, you can sort by, like, number of people that have, like, kind of thumbs up the story. I mean, of course, you know, sometimes people have shit taste, but... It still, like, lets you kind of put up front the stuff that people liked the most. That is a quick, you know, <laughs> quick response to that, I, <laughs> I suppose. It would be difficult to monetize. Like, it was hard enough. We take it for granted how difficult it was for Crunchyroll to actually succeed with legitimate yeah. anime. And that was a huge undertaking to make a cultural shift in the anime fan mindset to be like, you know what, it's worth paying this monthly fee for a legal copy of anime. And again, it's a fight that's still being fought to this day very vehemently anywhere that you go on social media. To then extend that now to be like, okay, now pay a recurring fee for your cartoon porno that you've had for 20 plus years for free. Now you got to be like, okay, well, what's the incentive? Do I get like this released early than other places? Does it get to be simulpub? Right. Or what have you. And it's like, how much do you consume of that? Like, that if it's like, say, what's Faku? Like 10 a month or something? No, Faku's expensive. Yeah. Because I remember, like, I didn't subscribe to it because it's kind of expensive. I should find out. We do have friends who actually work there. So we should get these things right. And so the challenge for, like, whether it's Faku saying, like, okay, we can get these things released simultaneously with better quality scans and sillier translations or what have you. It's a similar battle being fought on the visual novel side of it, much of which is Arrow as Mm -hmm. well. And only certain publishers are able to, I mean, I'm not even going to say succeed so much as survive 
with regards to the amount of labor that goes into creating those things and how they incentivize people to be like, get our version instead of the janky bootleg. And there's huge numbers of people. The games, especially because there's so much text to translate. Yeah. And that audience will insist like the fan translation is the true way also. And you have to overcome that. Yeah. And because like BL stuff usually sells a little bit better. I think those fans are, or at least used to be a little bit more willing to spend money, but like even so few BL games come out because again, like it's a huge effort to like translate. And I'm sure some of the big name ones, like I don't think anybody puts out any of the Nitro plus Kiral stuff because I imagine they probably want like high licensing fees for those. Okay, Afaku is $13 a month, which makes it one of the more expensive subscription services out there. Um, like, it's more like, than I pay for Crunchyroll, you yeah, know? Yeah, Crunchyroll is, what, $60 a year. Netflix And for is, your $13 a month, is there new things every day? Or, like, think, what's their release schedule? I think virtually every day something new is they released. They do release a yeah, lot of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Like, I believe they release chapters every day of something. So, it is an enormous amount of work. I'm sure it is totally worth it. But, yeah, it's you can see, like, it's a lot of work. And Faku was not legit for something like 10 years. Right. It's like Crunchyroll, where it used yeah. to be like a piracy site, and then it went legit. Right. Right, that's the trajectory for all of them. Yeah, good on them. I mean, it's tough. Like, in the anime industry, it seems like you have to get your place first, and then you can go legit, which is how virtually all these companies start. So, we hope that answers your question. And since we read your email on the show, Jacob, we're going to send you a free one-year... Got anime membership for our sponsor of this episode of the Anime World Order podcast, RightStuffAnime.com. Now, I was originally going to mention the fact that Right Stuff is doing a Kickstarter for dubbing Aria the Animation, which they announced at Otakon. We are about to get into our con review in just a second. Unfortunately for us, the Kickstarter has ended. All the stretch goals got met. It's coming out. Listen, I don't know if any of you guys read the news, but there was this hurricane that devastated Florida. I didn't have power or internet for weeks. I have it right now. Anyway, I will plug other things that you would want to get from Right Stuff in the event that Aria, the animation, the OG K, was not your scene. We are definitely going to talk about this in just a minute, but Right Stuff is also having the Gundam Wing Collector's Edition Blu-ray set, as well as Revolutionary Girl Utena on Blu-ray. They are also the place to go for the Gurren Lagann 10-year anniversary Blu-ray set. These are kind of expensive purchases, I know. But every week they also have publisher sales that offer some great discounts. Right now it's Section 23 Films, so if you want your Nozaki-kun box set, if you want your Haikyuu box set, if you want your Umaru-chan box set, now is the time to put in those orders. At least is the time of this recording. If you hear it and you go to the website and it's another publisher, don't worry, you can always wait another week or so. There are only so many anime publishers, and so the publisher discount special rotates with each week. But yeah, I definitely recommend Right Stuff as the place to purchase more or less all your anime Blu-rays at this point. Amazon has not really been coming through on the sales lately, to be honest. So check them out. The website is www.rightstufanime.com. Nozomi Entertainment over at www.nozomientertainment.com. Go there, buy their stuff, tell them the AWO sent you. Because we got to pay for this new hosting somehow, right? 
on with our contractually obligated look at Otacon 2017, which this year had one of the biggest changes in its recent history. It uh, has moved from Baltimore to the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C., and it had an attendance of 24,000 894 people, which is actually... So that is down again. That is down, yeah. Previous year, they had 29,113 people. So it has dropped quite a bit. They are no longer going back and forth with Anime Expo as the largest convention. The largest anime convention, arguably not an anime convention, is uh, jumping back and forth between Anime Expo and Akon, of all things. Then Anime Central is actually larger. Anime North is larger than Otakon right now. But yeah, again, a lot of that is because of a couple of factors, I would say. The main number one factor is just the change in venue from one state to another. I mean, yeah, they're geographically close, but a lot of times there was a lot of uncertainty among us as well as everyone we knew. How is this new location going to work out? Because we'd said it on the podcast before, we were at least accustomed to where to go in Baltimore and like where things were. Would this new place be better or worse? The first thing I think we all want to say, and I don't think there's any disagreement, the new venue is so much better. I don't have any problems with it. It is very large. It's so much bigger. There's stuff nearby that is very convenient. You can still get your Nando's and your Potbelly subs, and now there's a grocery store. Plus, just the fact that the convention center will seat like several hundreds of thousands of people. The Baltimore Convention Center was packed beyond capacity. There are always like these nightmare choke zones of traffic that you just get in the habit of like, I mean, just never even go there. And now you don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah, I think that's a positive change. And I guess this is where they're going to be for the next, I think it's five years. I forgot. Hopefully forever. I mean, I know right now they say the contract is five years, but from what I understand about Baltimore, it seems that they're not going to get their act together in five years time to be like, oh, yeah, we significantly improved the BCC that you guys can come on back. Yeah, it's interesting to think that Anime Weekend Atlanta, if the numbers are similar, is actually larger than Otakon. They got had 28,000 people last year, so if those numbers hold up, yeah, Otakon, interesting how they've sort of changed in their attendance in, in recent years. Now, why do you suppose that is, aside from the venue change? Because, again, it had been going down prior to that. I remember a couple of years they had some pretty lackluster guest lists. This year, I do not believe that was the case. But in previous years, I remember they had guests that weren't terribly interesting, at least to me. I don't know if that was the same feeling for you guys. I know that I can't be the only one because there were some big drops in attendance along with those years. One of the big things that was sort of like on the downside of Otakon had to do with a lot of the musical acts. We were talking about the Anisong Matsuri was an anime expo one year, and so everyone went to that. But this time, it was at Otakon, and so they had incredible musical guests. I think just the mitigating factor this time was the change in venue. Yeah, we got to see, at least Clarissa and I got to see some of the Jam Project concert, which was great. We had to duck out for our panel. Yeah, that's the story of our life is we miss this whole con because we have to do something. Yeah. More so than other years, we'll try to do less yeah. <laughs> maybe going forward. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, it comes with the territory, I suppose. But yeah, they had Jam Project and TM Revolution on Friday, and they actually did the Anime Expo thing where they charged a separate amount yes. for it. 
I guess it's because Lantis or whomever was like really orchestrating the concert side of things. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the back end of it, but it seems like it was a non-Oticon event held in Oticon. So it was separate cost, separate ticket and everything. Now, on the bright side, you know, we interviewed Jam Project or we went to the Jam Project one like nearly 10 years ago. And back then, they could only bring over the actual performers. And this time, both Jam Project and Team Revolution, they had a band with instruments and all that good stuff. So at least the money went somewhere. Yeah. I mean, we didn't get to see TM Revolution. We just heard that he kept taking off more and more clothes throughout his performance. I know, and now yeah, I'm really I mad it. that I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely... I mean, TM Revolution, let me put it this way. Dude's, like, gotta be pushing 50. Right. I think he's over 50, but, but yeah, yeah, he's... And I mean, he's in, like, way better shape than you'd expect anyone to be. And yeah, I get that his job is that he has to look good, but, you know, at the same time... 46, he's 46, okay. I was correct then. But yeah, I mean... You got to have some serious confidence to be like, all right, I'm just going to start progressively disrobing <laughs> as this event goes on. Yeah. I hope I'm anywhere near as fit as he is when I am 46. Good. I, I wish I was as fit as dead. he is now. Like, yeah. God. <laughs> and I think Daryl's right. We probably will be dead. But yeah. anyway. We didn't get to see much of the con. We were doing a lot of interviews. So please check out Otaku USA and Anime USA for a lot of those. Right. I'm a day late in submitting one of my transcriptions of said interviews to Joseph because the due date was yesterday and I got caught up playing XCOM. And so I did not <laughs> email him my uh, interview, but I will do so uh, pretty much after we record this. Right. So anyway, I think it was overall a good convention. Next year, I hope we can see more of it. It's very difficult for us to describe the convention as a whole. I heard the video game room was amazing. I never once went into that. Yeah, we... And I really wanted to. But the way the, our interviews were set up, it was like, well, you got 20 minutes with this person, be there 15 minutes early, and then an hour after that, you have an interview with the next person. Well, sure enough, the interviews would start slightly late, and then you'd only have like 25 to 35 minute window between one and the next, which was never quite enough time to walk away and do anything and then come back. And so we were kind of just rooted in like one location, sequestered from the rest of the convention for basically all Saturday. I mean, we did get some great interviews, but even though oh, yeah. even though they were very short and Unfortunately, some of the ones with the musicians have to be, frankly, really controlled, really controlled and frankly neutered in an annoying way. But right. It's just a Japanese music company stuff. Yeah, it's uh, maybe we'll talk. On about. the other hand, we did get what I still believe to be the greatest so far Yoshiki Tomino <laughs> anecdote. I still love that everyone has a different story. Every, yes. every, <laughs> every story is amazing and every one of them is completely different. It's fantastic. No one ever repeats right. a story. It's not like, even when they're working on the same show and they were there, it's always a different story every single time, and it always gets me. This year, like, a lot of the guests, it seemed that they were going for publicizing the release of Gundam Wing on Blu-ray because yep. they'd gotten, like, the producer Gundam Wing, they'd gotten, like, the writer Gundam Wing. Who oh, shit, right, I need to buy that. give a fuck about, like, just being, like, because this guy's a writer, he doesn't, like, care about like being diplomatic. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you talk about mostly things like, you know, my biggest challenge in my life was I had to write a hundred episodes of Naruto where nothing happened. Yep. Or like I had to write like an episode of Dragon Ball Z that was just adapting like eight panels, eight panels eight of manga. Panels of manga. 
That's <laughs> full episode worth. Oh my god, can you imagine that? That is a pa- one page and you have to get 23 minutes of animation oh, out man. of this. He was just like talking about like that stuff is just brutal. But those are the kinds of things that you got to go to Otakon for. It's for these guests that seem like kind of overlooked. I am glad I at least got to see Carl Horn at the Dark Horse panel. He hadn't been to Otakon for many, many years. But he basically did his panel as a sort of hybrid presentation of not just, oh, here's what Dark Horse is releasing, but also here is how American comics and manga have sort of been intertwined for longer than people think because nowadays we think in terms of the geek monoculture as like anime over here everything else over there Mm -hmm. but back in the 70s and 80s he had all these pictures to say like look here's jack kirby and stan lee and going to guy and all these people who you typically don't think of as traveling in the same circles but here they are all on stage or here they are all at Comic-Con back before it was like the Comic-Con that we know. Yeah. And Dark Horse, you know, was sort of supportive of that from longer back than people realized. So I thought that was cool. Fred Schott was great to talk to. Always, we, we always actually, fascinating to talk to Fred Always Schott. Ex- exceptionally like fascinating. And he did multiple panels. We were only able to, I was only able to catch like parts of one, which he did Sunday morning, I think, on uh, the Four Immigrants manga. But we got a great interview uh, with him. Thank you very much for taking our interview. It was great. As far as other things, like the way that the layout of the con is set up, it's a little labyrinthine. Part of it is just that we aren't familiar with it. But at the same time, you do have to like go up to the third floor to then go back down to the second floor to then walk around the corner and then go underground, et cetera, et cetera. It's, and it's, it's big. I mean, it took Clarissa and I three visits to the artist alley just to get through all of it. And we found the most popular anime was, of course, Overwatch. Overwatch is the biggest anime yes. of the year, <laughs> which, of course, we were lamenting the fact that, you know, the Overwatch Summer Games event was going on concurrently <laughs> with the convention. And so it's like, no, we are missing out on time to grind for loot. <laughs> but uh, the pain was shared across the board. Still didn't get that McCree skin. Oh, oh. well. I, so I, mad. I, got, I ended up getting everything, but as people noted, I grounded like a hundred plus levels in the course right. of like two weeks. Right. Like some out, outrageous amount of time expenditure to not spend $40. They, they've, but <laughs> they have found their marks. I, I should just do the math and be like, this is a job. You know, if the pay rate is this, you know, that's how they, you know, force you into mm-hmm. gotcha hell. Yeah. So as far as the dealer's room, I really wish that I had checked luggage or that that post office was around because they had Tamashi Nations there. Yeah, that's always had. It's always neat to see Tamashi Nations because they always have the really nice model kits that I can't fit into my luggage. They had con exclusives. Yeah. There. Some of them were not like must have, but again, some of them were like, you know, translucent variations of like Gundam Unicorn things or Gundam Thunderbolt things. Uh, But again, a lot of things they were pushing was on the Gundam Wing side. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, they did announce like that really impressive Blu-ray set from Right Stuff, whom we just... Yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah, We did just plug, through the magic of editing, we did just plug uh, the Right Stuff (laughs) Kickstarter Shortly before For Aria, the animation, this. which has been breaking through stretch goals left and right. Every single stretch goal, they're doing well on that. I'm looking tremendously forward to the G Gundam Blu-ray set, which, you know, when it came out in Japan, mm-hmm. looked like absolutely amazing. But I mean, as I was hearing from multiple people over the weekend, it's like, damn, I don't even like Gundam Wing all that much, but I need to buy that box set. 
it's like, it is a really, alone, if you are a fan of Gundam Wing, like that is a really nice set. Really, really but nice. But even if you're yeah. not a fan of Gundam Wing, it's a really nice yeah, set. Yeah, it is. Plus, the pre-orders for the Utena Blu-ray are up now. Yep. So that's $150. Yeah. And so I now you I pre-ordered that already. And it's like the Gurren Lagan because it was 10-year anniversary of Gurren Lagan also at the con, so they had a lot of guests pertaining to that. And that's also $150. So, you know, you have to meter out your very expensive uh, anime purchases in kind of a burst of right. time. Yeah. Spend all this money on more Blu-rays that I'll probably never actually get around to rewatching. Well, what's great is I've got the Utena DVDs that DVD are unopened. Sets. So I'm unsealed. <laughs> so I should just get the Utena Blu-rays Blu and keep those. Yeah. When they, Welcome well, to right. my world. When they come out with you know the Utena like beam into your brain high definition versions, yeah. then ultra definition versions, then I can get those and my Blu-rays will be unopened still. I'm sure. I need to rearrange my shelves because I have like a shame pile like Daryl now. I, yeah, I have. That's a- my house. I don't have a, a shame pile. <laughs> I have a shame home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do feel bad, though, because there's so many people who we saw over the weekend, not even a second. Some people we didn't even see at all. We did see a lot of listeners to the show who came up to us. And it's always great to meet you guys because for a few seconds, we we're reminded that something that we said had some tangible positive effect on somebody somewhere. And so that's always good. But yeah, uh, we did have panels as well, because you said you missed most of the concert. Uh, so which ones did you have? Clarissa and I did the History of Magical Girls. We were really worried because Uncle Yo, who is far more well-known and far more popular than we are, had a Magical Girl boot camp right opposite us at the same time. At the exact same time, same time yep. as the History of Magical Girls is the Magical Girl boot camp. We thought this was a weird thing to sort of have opposite each other. Uh, but we were fortunate. I thought our panel went very well. We had a full... It wasn't a huge panel room but we filled it up and then you actually got the biggest panel room in the con for your 18 plus anime and non-anime yes that was panel. added to the schedule kind Where of it was like waitlisted until like the very last week yeah, or something like that they, they kindly added it about a week before the convention or so and it was in a very large room i didn't fill the room but i thought it was full enough so it felt like it was like 90 percent, 85 percent full like and this is a massive main events ballroom style room only for a panel yeah i posted a picture of the room as it was empty <laughs> like pretending <laughs> pretending that nobody pretending was... that was the turnout like, <laughs> like it was a florida convention style panel turnout no it was actually a lot of people who showed up for so it. thank you all so much to find out that it's called hentai and it's art <laughs> yes yeah i hope everybody enjoyed it i tried to have as much new content as possible maybe i hopefully i can do it next year and try to get even more stuff i love showing these clips of whatever is popular that year like this year it was a lot of yuri on ice skaters olympic skaters and such who were into yuri on ice yeah yeah all the professional figure skaters and like olympic figure skaters are like gigantic into that show it's It's amazing i love it yeah because they're also the age for it right yeah it's great just the various clips i find thank you all so much people various people on the internet who send me things because as much as i try my eyes can't be everywhere all the time i forgot who sent me a clip of this basketball player who did a promo in the style of dragon ball z where he was that was amazing (laughs) he was a saiyan who was blocking all these like shots and stuff that is a fascinating whole subsection of youtube is people doing super saiyan transformations to themselves that's an oddly hypnotic thing, but now you take it to the next level and have professional sports players going Super Saiyan. Yeah, you really enjoy it. It's, it's fun seeing these people who genuinely like anime enough to yeah. put it in some sort of professional context. 
I think clearly the next thing we need to find is that ancient stream where Fred Durst showed off his Ava I, I, I found that after the convention, and I need to find that because that's important. I, I've only seen screenshots. I don't know if the actual stream like video is archived anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of searching. After the convention, somebody posted years ago, there was this commercial in the 90s for Murphy's Ale. That yeah, was Murphy's Irish, Irish Stout. Stout. Yeah, I've run that mm -hmm. clip and someone, at many a panel. Just, but somebody, it was Kotsuka, the French animation blog, yeah, so they have like some better hookups than we yeah, do. Yeah, they posted a very high quality version of it. Every other version you've ever seen has been taped off of VHS. That showed up after the panel, so you know, hopefully I can run it again at some point and have a whole bunch of new stuffs. Uh, your anime's craziest deaths was also full, a full panel. Yeah, I mean, um, it wasn't like that super huge room, but I, well, pretty much it did fill up. And again, it was one of those things where I wasn't sure, like, when is the Jam Project Team Revolution concert going to end? Because my panel is set right afterwards. Fortunately, the concert ended a little earlier than the allotted block because the people who paid the really expensive ticket money had to stick around to get their high fives. Mm -hmm. And so... I was able to clear out and then go in and see like, oh, well, let me go into the room and at least camp out for the panel to end so I can set up early. There was already a line. I go in the panel room. It's empty. So I'm like, let me just set up and start right now. Well, of course, I can't do that because you need a union tech and the tech's on break and, you know, all that kind of stuff to go and hit switch input source on a projector, you know, effectively. Even though I did get in there and st set up a little early, then the people said, you know what? Even though everybody needed a wristband or whatever, or the, the hand stamp or whatever it is, wristband at Oticon to, for 18 plus, don't actually start your panel until the allotted time. And they said this also for my 30 years ago, Anime 1987, like even though I was set up and ready to go and everyone is seated, they're like, oh, well, don't start until this time, which, okay, fine. That is, uh, is whatever. I just killed time otherwise. But that was another one. Like I thought it went pretty well. I yep. again tried to have like new clips. I don't think it was Katana Gatsuri. I think it was Kizumono Gatsuri that I was, was like showing the leader material for. It's like, yeah. well, they're not dead because they keep coming back to life. So it's <laughs> not an anime's craziest death content here i can just well, katanagatari is the weird one because that one is not part, part of the monogatari that's series yes. correct that's it's a different it's, one it's also interesting as well but it, yeah it's completely different people get it confused and i get it confused it's it's a very easy thing to confuse too many stories because Gatari, what's it monogatari just means like stories right right exactly that's yeah. why i said too many stories but then I did 30 years ago, anime 1987. I did read on the Otakon board that somebody said that I had the clips run too long and that I need to fit in more shows. And the, actually, the opposite is true. The reason that I was letting certain things, air quotes, run was because I was like thinking like, oh, is it not going to fill the time because of the buffer that's like you have to end a little early? And so I didn't like let things run too long. The average length of a clip is about three or four minutes. But I suppose... If you're watching The Wings of Oniamis or Royal Space Force, as it's known in the hood, it may seem like it's a long clip because I chose a clip that I thought was representative of the movie that is not the one clip of the movie that everybody talks about. It's the scene where, when he goes on the plane flight to get the zero-G experience and then gets off and then throws up and then gets into a bar fight. That, to me, I think is the... The true Royal Space Force experience. I thought that panel was good. Again, it was adapted from my Anime News Network feature that I'd written. And I usually 
try to fit in like a ton of ridiculous stuff. And I, in this case, I said like, let me keep it to about 10 or 11 things. And that way I can keep the clip length a little longer because unlike the joke kind of things like Anime's craziest deaths or like stupid video, I actually do want people to remember the exact shows that they saw. And to that end, we will post that list probably in the show notes for this episode when it comes out. Here's what we showed at History Magic Girls. Here's what we showed at 30 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those were all my panels. I only had to do the two, yep. if memory serves. Yep. But that's Otakon. A lot of people we knew were doing panels. Oddly enough, it seemed like the time we saw people the most was at the uh, Discotech Industry Panel, which is now run by previous Anime World Order guest, now professional anime dub voice actor Mike Toole. <laughs> who, if you weren't there, now they are going to release Bananya. It's part of their quest to be the criterion of anime. So they said, we're going to be the criterion of anime. Now we're releasing Bananya. Now we're getting Mike Tool to be the narrator for Bananya, the kitty who lives in a banana, which is a true work of criterion art. quality title. But they also announced like a lot of really cool things. They had the 2001 Cyborg 009 is what I'm looking the most forward to because we never got the full show. Yeah. yeah. I loved that show when it was on at 3 a.m. on Cartoon Network back then. But I remember I was staying up to watch it because there was nothing else for me to do in my life. And also I liked the show. But they ended it before you got to the, the final set of episodes in their broadcast because it just was not pulling in the numbers that Dot .hack Legend of the Twilight Gemini would bring in. But Discotech, pretty much almost everything they release is like, oh, this is awesome. And virtually everybody on my Twitter timeline was there. Uh, so I did not like post about like what happened because everyone else was doing it for me. Well, all this news is also very old news because it's been... Uh, well, yeah, yeah, but maybe people who are listening to this don't actually follow that stuff. Sure. As far as the other main thing that we did at the con that all of us did, uh, we finally got to see In This Corner of the World. I made a mistake when I was accepting the interview times because I thought the premiere was Friday and I was only half right. They premiered the dub before the Japanese version. And so I still have to watch the version in Japanese. However, a super dedicated person transcribed the entirety of what Masaru Mariyama said before and after the showing. So we'll put a link to that up in the show notes as well, if I remember to do that. My one-minute review of it is, if you have a chance, go and see In This Corner of the World. It is beautiful. Yeah, very, very good movie. Super well done. I'm glad that we kind of got to be at the ground level of that movie by virtue of going to Otakon and randomly being an artist alley saying, hey, what's this exhibit? Going in there, being blown away. And then doing the interview with Sunao Katabuchi, who's the director of it. Then we got to write about it in Otaku USA to spread the word. Then they did a crowdfund for it, which is amazing to me. A movie like that needs to be crowdfunded partially because people are a little unsure. Yes, by the director, yeah. by the director of Black Lagoon. So if you like Black Lagoon, this is clearly... <laughs> no, that's a joke. No, that's but, a joke. Um, no, it's a very, it's right. a beautiful, beautiful movie. Yeah, and it's interesting just how different it is from Fumio Kono's manga, but I believe we'll talk about it in this corner of the world. I just want to see the movie in Japanese before I do mm -hmm. so. I want yeah. to compare both versions because when I talked to Evan about it, he said in some aspects that I thought was a little odd about the dub, he seemed to think because he'd seen the Japanese that they were maybe trying to mimic portions of how the Japanese performances were done. Mm -hmm. But I have to see it. So I look forward to that in the future. But yeah, great movie. What else really stood out about Otakon other than the fact that 
They need to maybe like they already said in closing ceremonies, they're going to move some things around between this year and next year, mm-hmm. which, OK, that's that's good. If I may give a suggestion, maybe one of the things that you should move is the locations that you designate for your cosplay group photo shoots. And the reason for this is because you've got a room that's dedicated for it. You've got some big open areas. I found out after the fact that one of the areas they designated for group cosplay photo shoots was basically the middle of a hallway. There are signs, digital signs everywhere that says, don't take photos in the hallways. And so when we were going to the Jam Project concert, there was, we had to walk through, like, oh, I didn't have to, but I elected to walk through a circle of people in a photo shoot because they're blocking a hallway. And I got yelled right. at by a staffer for doing this, but it's literally the only way to get from where we were to the escalator that leads to the concert. And he was like, oh, there's no way around. to go around. Right. right. He was like, like, oh, go around. <laughs> you can't really go around. And you probably shouldn't designate a photo shoot when you're going to have like a whole lot of people going through this one area. And luckily there were no like horrible congested like Otakon previous years, Skywalk from hell kind of stuff at this con. This convention center is massive. You should easily be able to set up some group photo shoot areas. And it's not like there was even like a nice backdrop or anything where these people were standing. It's just an area. And so I think they should maybe look into that as far as don't put your group photo shoot areas in these through traffic zones. That's just one suggestion I would have. But other than that, I am looking forward to Otakon next year. I think it's now that the word is hopefully out that the new location is great and that at least the guests are back to like the caliber that you'd expect from, you know, a con. I hope yeah. they'll start going back on the uptick. I hope that next year they can get rid of the bag checks. That was something that I was very concerned about, but I'm now very concerned about it in a different way. So a few days before the con, they said, you know what, from now on, we need to have security bag checks for everyone each time you enter the convention center area, which for us was quite often because you had to go to the hotel to do the interviews or one of the hotels. And so we had to continually go back and forth through this bag check. Here's the thing. Let's say I had a gun. Let's say I just wanted to bring a gun into this convention and shoot, I don't know, somebody. These bag checks were so cursory that they may as well have not even existed. At first, I thought like, oh, God, it's going to hold everyone up. And I understand, you know, maybe in some portions of the early goings of the con, it was. But that's because you've got 25,000 people. Almost everybody's going to have a bag. Very few people didn't that need to have their bag checked. I always had to have a laptop because we were recording stuff or what have you. These bag checks, they're just like, yeah, yeah, you're good. And they didn't even like really check anything. And so it's security theater, really. It's much like the TSA. I'm not really sure. I would be very surprised if they stopped anybody at any point. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that would have been publicized if they had. But I just think that anyone who wanted to bypass this could have very easily smuggled in something that they really would not have wanted inside a convention center should they have chosen to do so with the level of security in these bag checks. And again, the alternative is you do a more thorough check and hold up the line. I mean, I know there is a precedent. I know within the last year, somebody did try to bring a weapon into a convention because they wanted to kill Jason Frank, who was the Green Ranger from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I don't whatever. People are crazy. And so this sort of thing is a concern, but I don't really know if this is a real solution to it or not. I don't know what the answer is. Longer bag checks 
there were nightmares at Anime Expo about this. Right. And we can't have that. So I don't know what the answer is. I feel like it's largely like a liability of the convention side. Or it's like, okay, we're going to sure. do like this cursory bag check. And now if something happens, now we can sue the security company instead of the con. Mm-hmm. I think that's really all it ultimately amounts to. It never really was like this huge, like the only inconvenience that it incurred was that if you went in through the main entrance, you now had to do like the Disney line queue thing instead of walking in a straight line to where you needed to go. But if you go in through the other entrance, which we only finally found on the very last day, there's like no real additional line to go through this thing. So we'll remember that next time. Try and keep track of when these hotel blocks open, because I think we may want to consider just staying in the con hotel this time, as expensive as it may be. That was Otakon 2017. So far, so good. If nobody else has anything else to add, I guess we can get on with this review. So this is a movie that I long wanted to review, but put it off for a very long time because of said house of shame that exists. As we (laughs) mentioned, there's just any number of things that remain unwatched. And so you try to deprioritize things you've already watched in favor of things that you didn't watch. And then you just kind of watch nothing for a very long period of time. And so here we are. Yep. But I will say this when it comes to talk and discussion of like who are the great masters of Japanese animation, fantastic, noteworthy film directors and such. The list of people that typically get named usually starts with Hayao Miyazaki because everyone knows him. And then invariably, someone is probably going to mention someone like uh, Satoshi Kon. Recently passed the seven-year anniversary of his death. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. I have to double-check if it's seven years, but I think it was seven years. I think he died in 2010. Something like that, yeah. Still still, still remembered. Yes. And then invariably, people will mention like Mamoru Oshii, even though he hasn't made like a good movie since Skycrawlers, and Skycrawlers is like almost a decade old now. But but people still recognize him as this great master of Japanese animation. From then on, it starts to get a little more iffy. And that, I think, part of it is testament to anime's versatility. I think another part of it is just testament to people don't know anime directors still to this day. And one of the people who, if his name is brought up, people will generally say, oh yeah, that guy's definitely a legend and a master, is Rintaro. Rintaro is a pen name. For many, many years, I thought it was Rin Space Taro, but as of this film, they decided that his official English spelling was Rintaro, one word, R-I-N-T-A-R-O. He's been a guy who has been around since the beginning of the modern anime industry as we would recognize it today. So not like the pre-war era stuff, but this guy was working at Mushi Productions with Osamu Tezuka on the original Astro Boy. Then he spent many years working at Madhouse. I believe he co-founded Madhouse. I should have the decency to have it open like any sort of biography on the man, but I don't. He's also made like several of the movies and TV shows that people consider like these greatest anime works of all time. However, 
<laughs> I mentioned However, this in a previous episode. The majority of his filmography is not available in print anymore. It's not on Blu-ray in the United States or even Japan which is very strange. And it's only recently that this has started to slightly change. Discotech has announced that they are going to release the Galaxy Express 3.9 films on Blu-ray. And so I'd highly recommend that. But a lot of his other works just have never been made available. A few months ago, one of his more recent films came out, Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis. And so I thought I'd take a look at it because I'd really only watched this movie shortly after it came out. First time I saw it was probably in 2001, roughly around the time it was released. Carl Horn, of all people, had a VHS tape, like a screener copy with time codes on it that this was back in the day when you could do this. At Anime Week in Atlanta, we just sort of like got word of this and then we got like a video room sort of commandeered. I was there for that. That was actually Sony showed up at the con with a screener with a screener. And you can't do this at conventions anymore. But basically said, we have this movie. Can you set us up in a room for two hours? Yeah, I, I remember it was this last minute thing, this word of mouth thing. And yeah. people got in there, you know, me, Gerald, Darius, now of Dragon Con we, TV fame. By the way, we didn't know each other back. then. No, no, well, we just happened so. to we didn't meet each other formally until many years later, but we'd oftentimes be like at the same places. And so that's how we saw the film. Then a little while later, it came out on DVD when Sony Pictures released a DVD version of Metropolis. And sometimes that would get shown in like anime clubs and whatever, but it never really um, got over. And so I always had this sort of idea in my mind of a recollection of, okay, this is what this movie is. And then I just kind of left it at that. Because the thing about Rintaro is that he was often, is still, he's still alive, a guy who would do like very experimental stuff. He'd always swing for the fences and people would typically be in disagreement over whether or not he actually hit or missed. Because some of the movies that people tend to say are great are by Rintaro. And some of the things people tend to say are like some of the most terrible anime movies ever are also by Rintaro. And the trouble is, is when people list out which goes into where there's not an agreement of which goes into where because Rintaro oftentimes swings for really big ambitious things and some people think it works and some people think it doesn't and I thought Metropolis was one of these things first I thought like oh, okay this is why it's such a divisive movie but now in 2017 I actually have to revisit my stance a little bit and I'll get into why in just a second the thing about Metropolis, the 2001 film I'm talking about, is that it's the sort of thing that you don't really see anime do so much of anymore. It's this very expensive blockbuster work that is simultaneously an homage to another person's creation, which is to say it's called Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis. It was made in 2001. Osamu Tezuka died in 1989. How is this, therefore, Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis? Well, when Osamu Tezuka first started off as a manga author, one of the first things he made was called New Treasure Island. And then from that, they said, we need you to make some more stuff, right? And so he said, okay, no problem. This was back before manga was even really like a word. They were still being published in what's called Red Books or Akahon so named because they were like really cheap paper bound in hardcover, but the covers were used with red ink, since the name Akahon. Aka means red, Hon means book. And so he made some things that are now considered like his sci-fi trilogy, 
One was called Lost World, one was called Next World, and the third was Metropolis. At the time when this movie came out, we couldn't read any of these things. None of them was in English. In fact, in 2001, doesn't seem like this is easy to believe, but virtually none of Osamu Tezuka's manga was in English at the time this movie came out. And so we really could only look at it at the time as a reflective of how does Rintaro make things and how does the writer and producer Katsuhiro Otomo make things. Katsuhiro Otomo, best known for Akira, as much as he doesn't want that to be the case, I'm sorry, Katsuhiro Otomo, your life work is Akira. That's what you're going to be known for. <laughs> yep. So we would always look at it through that lens. But now we have a large, overwhelming body of Tezuka's manga available in English that we didn't before. I've consumed a lot of this, and now to go and watch Metropolis again, I think I have a different understanding of the movie. But as Tezuka told it, his sci-fi trilogy, Lost World, Next World, Metropolis, those were things that he made when he was very young, just starting out. A lot of times, he just sort of was like freewheeling, going by the seat of his pants sort of thing. And when Rintaro was working at Mushi Productions, they actually went to him and said, hey, what Tezuka work would you like to be adapted into anime? What Name a project that you want to do. And Rintaro said, I want to do Metropolis. And Osamu Tezuka looked at him and said, no, I will not let you do Metropolis under any circumstances because... He wasn't proud of the original work, I remember. Well, the thing is, is that it was akin to like, say... If you become a really famous artist nowadays, I'm talking about in 2017, and somebody then finds your old deviant art page or <laughs> your old sketchbook, your response is that you're going to be like, this isn't up to my current standard of what I consider quality. And so Rintar, for many years, he was always at a loss. Like, why is Tezuka saying no so strongly? Because he actually had two things. I want to do Metropolis and another work by Tezuka called Zero Man which is beyond the scope of this. But I mean, in a way, now that you can read Metropolis next to other works by Tezuka, I think you can kind of see why Tezuka was hesitant, but also why Rintaro wanted it to be done. On the one hand, Tezuka thought most likely that the images and story were just relatively incomplete or rudimentary compared to something like, say, Blackjack, which is much more complex in what it's doing. But the reason Rintaro wanted to do it is because it is such a seminal work. So anyway, Tezuka dies, and now there's nobody to stop him. Related to that, there was a television special program about the life and works of Osamu Tezuka that they invited Rintaro on TV for. But they also invited Katsuhiro Otomo to be on TV for this thing. Otomo was like, damn, I'm going to be on TV, and I have to talk about Osamu Tezuka's career. Well, I better do my homework. So he went and he reviewed a lot of Tezuka's works, like as many as he could do. And as part of that, he read that same early trilogy of the sci-fi works. And so Otomo gets on the show, Rintaro's on the show. They get to talking about that Tezuka sci-fi work era. And Rintaro asks Otomo, if you could animate these things, which would you do? And Otomo said it would have to be one of those three oldest works by Tezuka. Although they're somewhat incomplete, those are the pieces I really want to work on the most. And that's how this movie came into being. And it actually took a long time to make, like five years to animate this movie. And it shows because it's actually an incredibly 
well animated work. At first, that was like a topic of contention because when we first saw it, we weren't really sure what to make of it. And I found out the reason why. And I only can tell you this now. I would never have been able to tell you this until I, I did this review. Every version of Metropolis, the anime that everyone has seen up to this point, up to like within the last year, is the wrong version of the movie to see. When Sony released the DVD, uh, maybe you've gone on like a BitTorrent site and downloaded like a rip of Metropolis, either from a DVD or maybe a 720p version or whatever you want to call it. Their release that they're sourcing it from is not mastered from film. It's taken from like a digital source. And the problem with that is this movie was animated. One of the first things to use like a hybrid of traditional 2D cell animation and 3D CG, which is to say on a sustained basis throughout the majority of the film, not talking about quick shots in Lensman or Golgo 13 or Shaw's counterattack or like little effects in Akira and Pat Labor, the movies and things like that. I'm talking about the film overall. And with the old source that was used, it doesn't composite well. It makes it seem like the 3D CG is moving too smoothly and is too weirdly sharp that the 2D characters that occupy it don't seem to fit that same space. And it's only now that the movie is on Blu-ray that it's mastered from film that I'm like, oh, that doesn't exist this version of the movie that you can now see, which is to say there are, and I'm going to preface this by saying there are now two Blu-rays that you can get of this movie. The first one is on Amazon. You go to amazon.com and you search for Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis and you see it's like $23 or something like that. And then you scroll down and you see like in bold, this product is manufactured on demand in the BDR format. Just to say it's like a burned disc. And the problem is, is that not all Blu-ray players can play a burned disc. For example, Xbox One cannot play this movie. I am generally hesitant to buy a burned disc as like my version of a movie just because of like the longevity of burned media in general. Right. It's shot onto a die then. It's not. It's not actually etched. Yeah, into the metal. If the die like flakes off or whatever, it is gone and done. But... There is another version available in the UK that is a regular, legitimate Blu-ray disc. And so I said, you know what? I've got the technology to bypass this region lock. I'm going to import this thing. It's 12 pounds, which when it works out to be about $20 is cheaper. And I've got the software and whatever. So I go ahead and I bought it. Took a couple weeks for it to arrive. I get the disc and it says, this is Blu-ray region B, DVD region two. All right. Well, let me go ahead, pop it into my uh, software to bypass it. And it just plays. The reason for that is because they lied. This is an all region disc. I can report that right now. You can take this disc, and even though it says it will only play in a UK player, you can put this in your regular PlayStation 4, it will play. There is no region coding on this. So the definitive version of the movie to get is the British version of it. it includes the DVD and the Blu-ray, and retains all the extras, I believe, from the old Sony DVD release, with the addition of another subtitle track, which I'll get to. Well, I guess I can talk about it now. When this movie came out, it had a theatrical release with one set of subtitles. Then when it came out on video, there was another set of subtitles. This version has actually a third subtitle track because there's actually an English dub for the movie, which to me, I think it's mostly just there. 
We talked to Mark Handler, who worked on this movie many, many, many years ago, and also Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, who's best known for Ghost in the Shell and stuff like that. But I still think the dub is just kind of average. And there's a subtitle track just for that. Then there's what's called the original translation or the more literal translation of the Japanese audio. And finally, there's the subtitles used for the theatrical release, which you would think from that description that, oh, I guess that means that the theatrical release subtitles are a little more fast and loose. The problem is, is that I don't know if there's quite any one subtitle track, which I think is the best. If I had to pick one, I'd say it's actually the theatrical track. And the reason for that is that on all of them, the subtitles seem like there are some incidental lines which either seem like they aren't subtitled right or they aren't subtitled. Like In the case of the literal one, there are lines which aren't subtitled at all. And then like sometimes they'll say phrases like the word coup d'etat. One of the tracks will subtitle is revolution. And then the other track will say coup d'etat because they're saying Japanese for revolution. They'd say like what, kakume? Something like that. Yeah. Personally, I would say do the theatrical track for it. But yes, this is the version of the film to see. And the reason for that is because I believe just from looking at it that they mastered it from a film print because there's a lot of grain that is visible now with the added resolution of Blu-ray that you could never see on the old DVD releases. The anime people who would do like their pirate rips would run whatever like filters or whatever to take that out. And so there's like a digital noise reduction or whatever that's done on like your Thora or whatever these pirate group releases are that actually fuck up the movie and make it look like it's kind of goofy. That I would say is 95% gone if you just buy the Blu-ray disc and watch it. So let me just get that out of the way first, because whenever the topic of Metropolis comes up, all anyone ever talks about is this blending issue of the background and the foreground. That isn't a factor anymore at all. As far as the film itself, if you aren't familiar, there is a very famous silent movie from the 1920s called Metropolis by Fritz Lang, 1927. Really influential sci-fi work that for many, many years was more or less not available in its original format. It's still not. It's like still entirely. like, yeah, like maybe nowadays we've got like 95% of the movie that has been found from a print restored. Like in Argentina or something, they found yeah, a bunch some of guy found draw. like most of the movie from a print. And again, I think you're right. It was like in Argentina and he looked at it and then they found some other scenes from Australia and said like, oh, you know what? They look like they all came from the same master. And so they got that very influential. Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis, however, is only very, very loosely based on it because Tezuka himself, if you actually get the Metropolis manga, it includes an essay, an afterward by Tezuka that they translated. He basically mentions, and this is a story that people have repeated very often, that he'd never actually seen the film when he decided to make the manga. Uh, he basically had seen... A poster, I understand. Effectively a poster. I mean, um, he didn't know what it was about, but during the war in a magazine, he didn't see a poster. But he saw a still from the movie in a magazine of the female robot's birth scene in the movie Metropolis. And he remembered it, and he liked the word Metropolis, and so he used the same name. Other than that, there's not like a direct connection to the 1927 film, or so he says, because thematically... There actually is quite a lot in common with the 1927 film while also being its own story. 
Luckily, there is not like a really bizarre version of Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis where they like changed all the music and did like the Ham Saban-ization. Like in the 80s, they replaced all the music of Metropolis with like Queen and shit like that. There's like this really bizarre version of Metropolis that at least Tezuka's manga didn't have to go through all that. This film, though, I would say that original DVD release is kind of like a fucked up way to watch the movie. I think, you know, again, I didn't know the original screener that Sony had brought was like a VHS tape with time codes, not the highest resolution, even DVD with what it done. Not really the way to see it. This is the way to see the movie. We didn't know then, like we do now, the extent of Tezuka's star system. This movie utilizes that in full in telling its story which is to say that Tezuka would oftentimes create characters and then have them show up and play like similar roles from story to story to story. Maybe we just sort of knew about that as a concept when we first saw it in the 2000s, but now we've lived it. I think if any of you have bought vertical releases, you know all about this stuff. But like the story of Metropolis, the animated film is, as you may guess, it takes place in this gigantic sort of nation city state mega city one like city where much like the 1927 film, there is a industrialist who's made like a, a giant sort of tower of Babel like structure. In this case, they literally call it the ziggurat. And then there's a scene where they explain what the ziggurat means and the tower of Babel and all that kind of stuff. There's also much like the 1927 movie, this undercurrent of an oppressed worker population, which was a, uh, recurring theme throughout Tezuka's work. He used to use robots as an allegory for people who are put upon. And I think that might be like the best reason to still go back and read the original Metropolis is because it's a precursor to Astro Boy. And even in some ways, a precursor to Princess Knight, because in the film version of Metropolis, there is a robot girl named Tima, whom the industrialist Duke Red has built in the likeness of his daughter who died to resemble her. She's got some highly destructive powers as well that she doesn't know about. She's not fully even aware that she's a robot. If any of you are familiar at all with Astro Boy, you would realize that, yeah, this is very similar to what the story of Astro Boy was, that there was a scientist who lost his son, who rebuilt uh, like a robot in the image of his son that he lost and gave him powers. In the original manga, the character was completely different. It wasn't a girl named Tima. The robot's name was named Michi. And this was like an innovative thing for like the 1940s, but the character was neither male nor female. And they kind of made a point out of this. That was actually for people who are caring about the history of, you know, your shoujo and stuff like that. People oftentimes talk about Princess Sapphire, Princess Knight, or Ribbon Okishi. But Michi is actually the precursor to that character. And so in Tezuka's own essay, he said, this is one of the major character archetypes in my series of heroes and heroines is this work right here. Again, though, written when he was very young, idea not quite fully formed and explored just yet. Now, when I first saw the film version of Metropolis, I'm like, okay, Katsuhiro Otomo is just Katsuhiro Otomoing it up as usual, making a story very much like Akira, where you've got a lot of moving parts going on. And in fact, even now, I would still consider Osamu Tezuka's Metropolis the closest spiritual successor anime has to all the non-punk aspects of Akira. But now I realize that he isn't really doing that because I've gotten to see what he's made after Metropolis as well as read more of what Tezuka is doing. He's explicitly copying how Tezuka writes stories in this. So, yeah, there are multiple things going on in this movie. Yes, there is this sprawling cityscape. 
there's a guy who is building a robot like a mad scientist who they story goes is like uh, harvesting human organs. There's a Japanese detective Shunsaku Ban and the boy detective Kenichi who've come from Japan to arrest this doctor. There's the robots that are segregated off and considered second class beings that are executed or whatever it will. There's a party, a political party that is trying to arrest control through a military coup. This all seems very complicated, but it's not really now that I'm very used to how Tezuka writes like his stories, it all seems like they were sitting there writing. If Tezuka were alive, how would he write this thing? And that's basically how the movie goes. This is a movie that a lot has been said about its visual design. When I say a lot has been said, I mean people have written their PhD dissertations on this movie. I found a couple of articles in academia.edu about specifically this film's politics as reflected through its architecture. The name is Metropolis. So as you may guess, the city is very important to that. The layout of the city is very similar to the Fritz Long movie where you've got the upper levels where the rich elites live and then like the subterranean underground where the lower classes are. Like as I was watching it, I actually thought like, oh, there's actually a lot of similarity between the way that Metropolis is set up and the way the world of Attack on Titan is set up. And I'm not really sure if uh, Hajime Isayama was actively consulting that or not. I mean, certainly Tezuka is famous. But there is an article or a paper, I would say, called Serial Cities, The Politics of Metropolis from Lang to Rintaro by a guy named Lawrence Bird, who's an architecture PhD, who actually wrote a paper all about comparing and contrasting the Fritz Long Metropolis to the Tezuka Metropolis with regards to their architecture and how that portrays in the theme of it, I will link to it in the show notes because I'm not just going to read through this stuff. But if you've never seen the original movie Metropolis or Osama Tezuka's Metropolis, they kind of use this sort of hybrid art deco along with you know a couple other architecture styles. There's a guy. Does anyone know who Albert Speer is? Nope. Okay. Well, you're, you're lucky that you don't know who Albert Speer is. <laughs> Albert Speer was Hitler's chief architect. Ah. And so when it came to like designing the buildings that represented fascism, Albert Speer was your guy. And so there are elements of that reflected in the architectural design of this film of the ziggurat and things like that, because it's not just pure art deco because there's also gargoyles and all these kinds of weird things the nature of like just the visual design of the city is so integral to like what makes this movie work that it's difficult to talk about in audio unfortunately but what i will talk about is how i perceived the movie then versus how i perceived it now one thing that i will not downplay too much is when we saw this movie the movie came out in 2001 took five years to make came out in May 26th in Japan. We didn't see it until after that. So basically what I'm getting at is we saw this movie in the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks on 9-11. Obviously, Metropolis was not in response to that, but that's just what is on everyone's mind. And certainly this being a Katsuhiro Otomo work, the last 15 or 20 minutes is just full-scale destruction. And so just that imagery of buildings being destroyed, you know, is kind of like what people remember about this movie. But I think in 2017, there is a lot more to get out of this movie 
than there was back then. And the reason for that is everything else about the movie. This is a movie where, how do I put this diplomatically? In the news right now, within the last year, within the last seven or eight months, we, um, you know, I've been subject to stories about the marriage between industrialism with government and the ties of how fascism comes and takes over and normalizes a society. This is a movie where characters can pull out a gun and shoot what seems to be an innocent person dead in the street and absolutely nobody cares. Everyone is just walking to work because they know they could be next. Nobody speaks up or the people who do speak up are revolutionaries that are downplayed. You have the society where there is massive inequality between the ultra rich and ultra destitute, staggering socioeconomic disparity where, you know, you have like this labor workforce that is just driven until the point where they can just be disposed of, discriminated against by the same humans who benefit for, quote, taking their jobs. A lot of this is mirroring the real world now. I think you have people here who are being denied their basic rights, who seem to be able to be executed by our authoritarian forces with very little justification, if any. In this film, there is also an uprising brewing because of that. It's in a lot of ways, we're about to get another sequel to Blade Runner, of all things. There's a lot of Blade Runner in this movie. And it's not just me who thinks that just because Blade Runner also has Harrison Ford gunning down robots in the big city. But this is a movie that specifically has calls out to some of the aspects of Blade Runner with regards to its city design. And in fact, earlier this year, and I did not expect this to come up, they made a live action version of Ghost in the Shell. And the city design of that actually takes portions from specifically the Osamu Tezuka metropolis aspect of city design. There's some scenes in this that you wouldn't necessarily remember having not seen it in many years of, say, like a giant holographic fish and things like that that you see throughout the city that they transpose into that movie, which I thought was okay. At least the visual design side of that film did a lot of homework as far as like what would be like a cool futuristic cityscape to put in. That is, I think, what I would like people to kind of go back and look at this movie now is. It's just how normalized to brutality the populace of this world is. A lot of times people are just walking by and in the background, some robot or whatever is just being beaten to death by a gang. Nobody does anything to help. That's just the world that they live in. Of course, the president wants to use, and it's weird, the president of Metropolis, he's not the mayor, so I guess it's like kind of a, like I said, nation state sort of thing. Metropolis has a military also, so again, there's a portion that wants to seize full control of the government and restore things, but there's also a industrialist character, Duke Red, who is the guy who's built the ziggurat. This is really what the movie is all about. And yeah, the ostensible main character is Kenichi the Boy Detective who meets Team of the Robot Girl, but that doesn't happen for about 30 minutes into the movie. There's a lot of other things that people, when they think of Metropolis, don't really consider anymore that I think this movie really deserves to be revisited. For visual alone, I think it's absolutely worth rewatching. This was a $15 million movie, which is colossal. 150,000 animation cells they used for it. Every bit of that effort is apparent on the screen. Really dense 
crowd scenes. It's not like the cities where you see like barely anybody moving. No, every frame of this thing, you could take it and put it on a wall. I used to think like the story is a muddled mess or there's a lot of things don't go anywhere. If that's true, that's only as true as so far as everything else that Osamu Tezuka writes, because it's so similar to how he would tell a story that there are a lot of times, like, say, if you look at something and say, oh, you should just cut this out like it doesn't need to be there. Well, what is it trying to tell you? It's trying to tell you something else about either the background or what have you. And this is like a very much a Rintaro thing, because maybe nowadays when you think of like a CG anime movie, you think of like the Shinji Aramaki bullshit or you think of really sketchy looking cars that don't really integrate well <laughs> into your animated footage. Rintaro He's such an old time guy. He's in his 70s now. He started off again in the black and white era. He never had any intention of doing anything all CG. He never had any intention of like, got to use the computer. He's like, I want to use digital animation to overcome the limitations of cell animation. I'm going to drag the digital world into my analog cell animation world. I think that's a difference between how a lot of anime now is made versus what he's doing. In fact, there were some interviews with staffers where they said, you know, maybe he's a little too analog world because there are times when they were making the graphics where he'd take a black magic marker and start drawing his suggested directions directly on their CRT screen <laughs> of like, here's what I want you to do. And they're like, oh, what are you doing? This is not paper. Yep. <laughs> and, and then it's like they got to get like benzene or whatever it is to <laughs> clean off a monitor. But, you know, he was very much open about the fact that, you know, whenever they'd ask him, what would Tezuka think about this? Both him and Otomo together. It's like, well, first of all, Tezuka would never have given us permission to make this film. We're only able to do it because he's passed away. But we do think that he always wanted to do new things. And he was always like very competitive. Like when he'd see other people who started to make Gekiga, he's like, I can do that too. So once he saw like digital technology be incorporated into anime, I guarantee you he would have tried to incorporate it into his work. He yeah. just never would have given the okay to animate Metropolis specifically. He might have done something else. But in any case, there is uh, another thing that people really remember about this movie is the soundtrack, which is again, not like pretty much any soundtrack to an anime that you've probably seen since or even before. And the reason for that is because it's this sort of full jazz soundtrack, specifically like this New Orleans Dixieland sort of uh, score. In fact, Rintaro, the director, is actually playing the bass clarinet for the score of this. But they actually got a very famous sort of jazz composer to do the score for the film. Most of it is stuff I'm not familiar with because I don't really follow jazz. But a lot of the film's score consists of different performances or different iterations of the main theme melody. And they did interview the guy and he says that's the most important thing for music to sound good is you need to have a good melody. If you play it on multiple instruments, it has to sound good because I'm going to play this in different orchestrations of it. One question you have to ask, this is the composer, he said, does this still sound good if you hum it in the shower? Can you still do it and have it sound good? I think that he definitely pulled it off. I think this movie is a huge achievement in terms of its visual design. In fact, right now in 2017, as of this month or last month since it's September now, there is an anime architecture art exhibition showing the fictional worlds created for Japan's animated movies in London right now. And the films that they chose are Pally of the Movie, Akira, 
and this movie, Metropolis. So, I mean, certainly there is a Katsuhiro Otomo streak to that insofar as that Otomo, his manga, was always hugely elaborate in its architecture, design work, and things like that. But, I mean, this is literally, not exaggerating, belongs in a museum. And it is, multiple times, that level of animated work as far as incredible background detail, incredible architecture, not just as eye candy, but as something that drives the narrative of the film. Again, people have written about this movie at a very high like academic level. And so what I'm talking about is not really the specifics of like, oh, they meet a robot and they get chased after by, you know, the forces of darkness and then everything explodes like, okay, fine, that's one thing. But to me, I think the devil's in the details of this movie. And there are so many details that you need to like watch this a couple of times. I know a lot, a lot of people put too much faith in movie reviewers, but one of the movie reviewers that people tended to put faith in uh, was Roger Ebert, who's been dead for many years. I'll read what Roger Ebert said about the movie. Roger Ebert considers Osamu Tezuka's version of Metropolis up there with Dark City, up there with Blade Runner. He says it's one of the best animated films he's ever seen. The city is not simply a backdrop or a location, one of those movie places that colonizes our memory. He says that this is a movie that if you have never seen an anime, start here. If you already love them, Metropolis proves you're right. Ebert was always positive towards Japanese animation, far more so than other movie critics of his time. A lot of people saw what Ebert would say about anime as like a validation of our art form, finally. I mean, I don't put that much faith in Roger Ebert, but I know a lot of people do. He thinks extremely highly of Metropolis. He gave it four stars. And a lot of people, if you talk to anime fans, their memory of this movie is like, that movie was just okay, or that movie's not all that. And the reason for that is because they're remembering the version they saw on home video. And Ebert saw it in the theater. Nowadays, this Blu-ray, you can basically get the equivalent or as close an equivalent of seeing it on film as it was meant to be seen. When I originally was going to review this, I was thinking more in terms of like, oh, well, maybe it's historically important or maybe there's a, a value to just talking about this guy Rintaro and how weirdly inconsistent he is. But now that I've seen so much, I can see like how much of a love letter to Tezuka it is, because even like the crazy gags that Tezuka would do, they would do things like put the little pig gourd thing in or have a settling lamp who's one of his characters, have a lit candle appear on top of his head, like all those little things that are only there for like a quick second. There's so much to consume in this movie. I watched the movie a few times to do the review, and obviously it's a very antiquated style of movie because the character designs are very faithful to that old Osamu Tezuka art, but the animation is completely state-of-the-art. The music is obviously evocative of like this old 1930s stuff. Even the scene transitions... They use the iris wipe transition to either call attention to key items or end scenes. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about when I say the iris wipe? Yeah, that's a very yeah. old-fashioned, used a lot in silent movies. Yeah, silent and in movies. Metropolis. Yeah, the, the 1927 Metropolis, old Looney Tunes. Like, yeah, I was about to say, it used to be popular in like the Looney Tunes cartoons. Right, where well, the right. screen goes black, it's like a circle, the circle that shows the picture gets smaller and smaller as the whole thing fades to black. They actually do that. You never see anybody use that kind of a wipe in a movie. Like, I can't think of the last time I've seen it outside of like, you know, Wile E. Coyote falling off a cliff kind of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, one of the most integral figures of this movie and it's sort of like the first place I ever saw the character, there's a Osamu Tezuka character called Rock, a Rokuro. Yeah. 
he was never in the original Metropolis manga. The character hadn't been created yet. And I think when this movie came out here, there hadn't really been stuff released officially here that had him in no, it, right? No, he wasn't in it at all. Yeah. The few things that we had gotten didn't include Rock in the Star System cast that appeared in that manga. Like, he's not an Adolf, for example. Yeah. So this was like my first introduction to the character of Rock, which is fascinating because he's going against type in this. Rock is the bad guy, undeniably so, or, well, debatably so. He's the protagonist in his own mind, but Rock is definitely the central antagonist of this movie because he's walking around with his very Hitler-esque armband that denotes that he's part of what's called the Marduk Party or Malduk in the other subtitle track but it's definitely supposed to be Marduk and he just you know he's got his dark shades on and he's walking around with his armband and he just runs around and shoots fucking everybody in this yes. movie <laughs> he's just firing his gun but to me I remembered that aspect of it but I wasn't paying attention to the fact of how do people react to him shooting everybody and that I think is more fascinating what is happening there at first I thought like it was ridiculous like oh wouldn't people lose their shit how could this occur but now it's like yeah, this isn't that far off. The apathy of a populace like that. Rock, in this case, his storyline, you, you get all this in the first like five minutes. So it's not really a spoiler. He's the adopted son of Duke Red. He looks up to Duke Red. He wants him to be acknowledged as his son. Duke Red doesn't see him as his son. He never calls him son. You're just like some foundling that I found. You now work for me. So Rock wants validation from Duke Red. But Duke Red is all his passion is into replicating his dead daughter. And so he's got more love for a machine than he does for Rock. Rock is head of the Marduk party, which is like very like anti-machine, like sort of like a stand in for like anti-immigration in this film. Because, you know, the robots are taking our jobs and they're breaking the laws and they need to be brought to heel. And, you know, we got to call the herd. That sort of stuff is what Rock is all about and what he represents in this movie. But yeah, 90% of what Rock is doing throughout this is just committing horrific acts of violence. Of course, there's apocalyptic super weapon in the form of what the ziggurat's actually all about. Why it's actually an apocalyptic super weapon is probably for the same reason why you don't want to trust Mega Industrious with the nuclear codes. Oh, never mind. I guess we do. <laughs> there's um, also Norio Wakamoto's, one of his last performances in anime before he became Christopher Walken of anime. I know it's hard to believe there was a time when Norio Wakamoto wasn't just rolling every R for all it was worth. <laughs> but in this case, he's playing uh, Pero, who is effectively another from Osamu Tezuka's sort of star system. He's Robot Detective K. He's not designated K in this, but in this case, they call him Pero, which is a dog's name, kind of like Rover or Spot. He sort of represents a guy who is not like this malicious person or character or actor, but he is subject to like extreme prejudice because he is a robot. And so that's how we sort of get that aspect of you know, the narrative along with Fifi, who is another robot design who you sort of see show up in Tezuka works. Maybe if you've seen Phoenix or Red Phoenix, there's a character called Robita kind of looks very similar to like Rosie from the Jetsons or sort of like that kind of robot. We will see these characters again once Pluto gets made into an anime. Yeah, I was about to say she is in Pluto, right? Yeah. Yeah. For a part. They never explicitly state where Metropolis is. But this is a movie, like I said, it's all about background. It's all about telling story through scenery. So there is, in fact, a moment where they're hiding out in the revolutionaries area. There's a lot of like Che Guevara-esque things in the background. But there's also in one scene, there is a map and there is a red border drawn around it, which suggests this is like how much space Metropolis takes up. And 
if you pause it, because I'm a maniac, I do this sort of stuff, you can see it's laying out what seems to be like the northeastern U.S., Toronto, Canada area, like Mississauga, Burlington, sorts of places like that are called out on the map. They do make a lot of note that, hey, Kenichi and Shunsakuban are from Japan. They're not from here, which was also carried over from the original Metropolis manga where they didn't really state where this thing was taking place. And I think it actually works better if they don't explicitly say like, oh, this is taking place here because it's meant to be allegorical sort of tale. There was one other thing I wanted to mention on the topic of backgrounds. This is made with a very sort of international audience in mind, which is weird because it's not like it got like a huge international acclaim or viewing. It's just like sort of known like on the downside. Nearly all text in the film is in English. There's maybe one tiny little bit of jank where I I had to freeze frame it because they were at the police station being introduced to Pero and it says Metropolis with an L. And then when they look in the newspaper, it says daily with a Y, like D-A-Y-L-Y. But there are way more complicated English spellings in this movie they got right. Like they were able to spell proletariat right. But as I'm looking at it right now, I can tell you this is how much detail is in this movie. I was so hyper-focused on the spelling of the word metropolis that I didn't realize that in this exact same scene, the chief of police is reading porno. Uh, it's just like <laughs> naked women are on this like magazine lying on this book. Is they just like we don't give a fuck. This is the kind of detail that we do. As I'm drawing like every frame of this movie very meticulously. But yeah, I would say I know a lot of people. Whenever Rintaro comes up, it's like oh, half his movies are great, half his movies are shit. I think it's these. I don't think it's these. Let's say you thought that this was one of the bad movies and your reason for thinking it was a bad movie was that the visual aesthetic of it was just way janky or that the narrative was muddled and confusing. I would recommend that you give this movie another look, but that you do it using the Blu-ray because as best as I can tell, every pirate encode I've ever down like because I went and I checked right before I did this and it's like I downloaded them and it looked they appear to be wrong now I'm not going to say that you're going to completely disregard the fact that there's some portions of the movie where sometimes it's apparent that the CG background and there's a 2D foreground but I would say it was maybe like one scene maybe two both relatively near the end as opposed to this like continuous thing that you're having to cope with throughout the film. And I think just so much of it comes down to the fact that if you have a video source that actually preserves the film grain, it actually interpolates like these two technologies a million times better. And it's too bad that again, Metropolis DVD out of print in the United States, Blu-ray in a format that I would be very hesitant to recommend people buy again, BDR. But again, like I said, import the UK version It is cheaper than the BDR version. It may take a little while to be delivered. It does not have any region encoding on it. That's the version of the movie to get. So I'm guessing both of you probably didn't rewatch the movie lately. I think you probably just saw it decades ago, right? Yeah, I don't have a copy of it. Yeah, it's hard to find. Yeah, but I'm curious to rewatch it now because I also remember feeling like, like I didn't dislike it, but I also remember feeling like it felt kind of disjointed. So yeah, I'd be curious to go back to it. Yeah, because again, I actually, I still had the old DVD and I put them in side by side and I was like, oh yeah, this is the what I remembered it being. It's not your fault. It's I think a lot of it is the function of just the releases that we got and the releases that we continue to get because it just makes whatever 
the encode and the authoring, like that's how much of a difference those technical things can make on your perception of a movie. It's easy to forget this, but there was like this very short window of time, which is when Metropolis came out, when anime was actually cool. I would say it's the time period (laughs) between The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded. This is sort of your three-year window gap, right, that Metropolis made it out. Here's what Rintaro said. He said, Mr. Watanabe from Bandai said, the only things that Japan is proud of are Nomo and the animation. Though now there's Ichiro too, I guess. And he's referring to Hideo Nomo, who is the very first native-born Japanese baseball player in the American Major Leagues. Those are two things that Japan can be proud of as their cultural exports 15 years ago, is baseball players and anime. And then he said, you know, I expect we could actually create something even better if we collaborate with the U.S., but then our production system hasn't improved at all, so it makes our work harder to achieve good quality. Japanese animation might stay as it is for now because of that. And, you know, obviously people aren't probably knocking down the doors to collaborate with Japan and the U.S. because of co-productions usually end up being sort of janky. In fact, right now there is a notoriously ill-advised Jaden Smith production IG air quotes co-production whose quality level can be described as subpar at best. But yeah, I mean, for a movie written by Katsuhiro Otomo, produced by Masaru Mariyama, animated at Madhouse, directed by Rintaro, based on original manga by Tezuka, this is like a superstar murderer's row kind of movie as far as like great talent of the anime industry. And I think if you're one of the many people who are like thinking that this movie was just sort of whatever or it was kind of muddled, give it another shot. I will point out that in the extras for the film, they showed the premiere of the movie and they didn't call attention to this, but I can't help but notice Yoshiki Tomino was at the premiere and all I could think about was this movie came out when he had that window of time between Turn A Gundam and Overman King Gainer. And I can only wonder... Did he watch this movie and be like, I'll show you, I'll show you all. (laughs) And Overman King Gaynor came about. I think that's whenever he sees anything that he likes, he says the same thing. He's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to do this for real losers, (laughs) but we'll get to that when we talk about brain powered, I suppose. But well, it's going to happen. I have a little story attached to this. I remember when this movie was announced and I was really excited to see it. And this was back in the time when there was a high probability that you could see the new release at an anime convention. Nowadays, that's not necessarily the case because now things sometimes have to go through like movie studios and they have to go through like a process. But I was very excited. This, I believe that was my first anime week in Atlanta. And at that anime week in Atlanta happened, I want to say weeks after 9-11. Weeks after 9-11, in, right. In fact, because attendance was very much down. I remember I flew to that one. There was very few people on the flight. In fact, the vice president of the airline I was on was on the flight and thanked everyone personally for flying. That was how bad things were then. When the convention started, there was a moment of silence. So it was a very interesting atmosphere for my first AWA. And I remember watching this movie in that room. Yeah, none of us knew each other. I remember being very unimpressed with it. None of it, I will admit, the CG at the very end of the movie looked really bad. But that wasn't what got me. What really got me was the characters, that the characters were, and I own this movie too. For some reason, I, I wasn't impressed with this movie at all, but yet I, yet I went and bought it as, and showed it to several people. And I remember like the characters didn't strike me at all. I remember there was this point where the main character disappears for a while and then reappears as kind of a totally different character, at least a completely different personality. And that bothered me a lot. I remember coming away from this completely unimpressed and 
Dave Merrill will have no recollection of this. I knew who Dave Merrill was. He didn't know me. And I remember the next morning getting onto the elevator and Dave Merrill walked onto the elevator with me. And this other guy who I only knew vaguely at the time, um, I believe an, an Arabic fellow who was just really sweet and nice to me all the time. And Dave said to me, oh, did you see that Metropolis movie last night? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, what did you think of it? And I was going to say, I really didn't like it. And then the other guy chimed in and said, oh, that was an amazing move. And he said, yes, I know. That was absolutely amazing. I was like, wow, I almost ruined my first impression with Dave Merrill right then. For some reason, this movie never struck me. I guess I need to watch it again. None of my complaints are with how it looks. It looks gorgeous. Even the version that I saw on DVD, the cell animation is amazing. My biggest problem was how the characters were written and how they interacted with each other and sort of their motivation as the movie progresses. I think if you've read a lot of Tezuka manga now, you're either accepting of that or not. And I think it's just that's one of the things like it's very much written like how Osamu Tezuka writes his manga characters and how his plot progressions were, especially like those initial three things that he wrote. That's very much what they were doing in that style. And so there's so much Tezuka manga out now that if you're the type of person who like backs DMP Kickstarters or, you know, buys like a lot of these vertical releases or whatever, I think it's not even going to register with you anymore because you're just so used to it. Like, I don't think it's going to jump out to you as much, but maybe it still will. I don't know if you read any of that manga. Yeah, I, I get most of it. Yeah, and I read it as well. I've read enough Tezuka that this one still feels off to me. When's the last time you rewatched it? It's been a while, and I admit that. Because I'm just thinking, like, in terms of, like, we haven't started getting the manga flood for Tezuka until, like, the last, say, six years. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if you haven't rewatched it since you've read, like how Buddha happens or how like even like his other stuff, because it doesn't read like this is an Otomo script just because I've seen what Otomo has written since to get that idea. Maybe, like I said, again, the end, that's the pure Otomo aspect of it. But I think the parts mm-hmm. that you're saying that you don't think are all that good because you think it's a little too abrupt or jarring or too simple or what have you. There is like a definite stylistic homage to Tezuka, like what he would do. Perhaps. And again, I didn't know about that at the time. I only know it now. Like I said, my biggest issue is not how it looks. It's really how the characters are written and how they interact. It bothered me then. It bothered me the last time I saw it, which was probably six years ago. It may still bother you. I mean, um, it didn't register to me at all that this is weird or this is jarring. Like maybe it's because I've been watching so much Tomino that like, because <laughs> he sets the it's bar so you. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah maybe he, he set the, the bar, bar so for like, this is like an unnatural interaction to have. Yes. Right. Right. There's also, again, a lot of the interactions are between people and machines. And so if a machine responds in a sort of strange way, or a person who is so rich that he considers like anyone below him to be like not even human, you know, maybe some of those interactions are colored in that sense as well. Maybe. And again, I'm not saying that rewatching it is going to change that too much, but I do know that it stuck with me for a long time. And I remember watching it with multiple people and they would all come away saying like that movie looked really beautiful. And then I would say, yeah, but why did this character do that? And they'd say, hmm. I don't know. That didn't make sense. I didn't get any point where I would say, if anyone asked me, why did somebody do something that I would say, I don't know as a result of my watch of this version of it this time, but maybe I'm just used to the way that Tezuka would make certain jumps. I I think a lot of people will come away for like, 
again, I am used to how Tomino writes things. It doesn't mean I like how he writes things and doesn't mean I understand how he writes things. I understand sort of how Tezuka writes things and I like how he writes stuff later in his career. I like the Blackjack stuff and Mew. And I mean, I guess Buddha was written a bit earlier and Phoenix was written, you know, throughout his entire career. But this one, I would say purchasing it for the visuals is great. I need to watch it again, perhaps. But the way the characters are written and like the entire character sort of interaction still bothered me. So that's probably not, you know, the best way to go at it. But it's something that stuck with me for such a long time that the visuals didn't even stick with me because the character just seemed so off. Yeah, I didn't see that at all with the characterization. Like, that didn't register me. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is janky writing or any of that kind of stuff. But again, a lot of the storytelling is visually told as opposed to through dialogue. There's a lot of, like, body language type stuff in this. But yeah, it's very much the star of this is the background and the cityscape aspect of it that we can't really overlook it. It's just it's very difficult to talk about this without actually showing pictures and showing like what the camera is focusing on or showing what is in the background, because obviously someone had to draw this thing. Mm-hmm. Also, of course the soundtrack, I didn't even say the guy's name, but his name is Toshiki Honda. And again, very much based on like 1920s jazz type stuff. All this is not accidental. I will say maybe it's not a good choice to show like in a group setting. I think it, historically, in my experience, like any attempt to show this movie in like an anime club, the movie is kind of bombed. And I think it's because the style looks too old. The style is too old. Uh, you have to do look at everything that you're seeing because there's just a lot to get out of the movie. And again, the Dixieland ensemble, like music puts in people's mind, like, OK, this is old timey stuff. And then the artwork being Tezka's like 50s designs, same thing. So I would say, um, you know, watch this thing uh, by himself. Certainly, as I was talking about it, it's not just Roger Ebert who thinks very highly of this movie. Everyone's favorite director who is now making four fucking sequels to Avatar, James Cameron. He wrote Metropolis is the new milestone in anime. It has beauty, power, mystery and above all heart. It will stay with you forever. So, um, you know, he said above all heart. So it's not like just like this pretty looking movie. But again, James Cameron may not be um, just about (laughs) that's my sentence that I'm speaking. James Cameron lately, who knows how trustworthy James Cameron could be. But this was James Cameron before all that shit back when he was still, you know, the man as opposed to the. If the machine just pumping out Avatar. I was going to make some sort of joke about if you use your hair to fuck an animal and you can then take control of that animal. It's <laughs> also, you know, your your sex tools. Anyway, that's the movie. I'd be very interested to know what people have their memories of. I assume they are mostly going to be in line with what John Carissa said, because that was the version of the movie that was available to everyone. And I don't think very many people have seen this Blu-ray because again, it's not sold in the United States. And in fact, the Amazon version of the Blu-ray only came out in February of this year. That's the BDR version. And then the UK one, which I recommend people get came out in March of this year. So again, unless you saw this thing within the last six months, I'm guessing you probably don't agree with me. Or you probably are listening to me and thinking, yeah, but what about this? And, you know, my response is, again, I think just so much of it 
depends on the way that you see the movie. But yeah, certainly even the New York Times, which lately their op-ed section is full of shit, same as the last decade, but their movie section said it was virtually encapsulates the history of Japanese animation. It's a hallucinatory tour de force of color, perspective, and scale, which is a very New York Times review-like sentence. So that say. sounds like one designed to get on the, on the cover of something. It, but it actually, <laughs> it actually was not on the cover, oddly enough. It sounds like a Peter Travers quote yeah yeah almost right (laughs) almost but they did not use it for the cover at all it's something i need to i need to watch give it it another chance but i unfortunately can't point people to a version to steal that you could download that would look the same like i know there's ones that say they're 1080p that they're sourced from a blu-ray but whatever filter chain that these people use still like takes away like that detail. So obviously it's just spend the $20 on a British. It seems that way. Yeah. Which is not bad. That's a lower price than a lot of Blu-rays domestically. Right. Uh, Certainly it's cheaper than like if you were to buy like Guardians of the Galaxy 2 or something like that right now. But uh, but anyway, uh, that's my review. Uh, Once again, the website is www.animeworldorder.com. You can email us at animeworldordergmail.com. I'm going to be at Anime Week in Atlanta doing um, largely a lot of the same stuff that I did at Otakon, but I've also got my stupid video panel of Doom there. Will be interesting to see how this AWA goes, if it will, in fact, be our last one or not. A lot of people are no longer there. Tim Eldred has to miss this year, which is, I think, the first time in a very long time we're not going to see Tim. Uh, Certainly a lot of people like Mike, they don't go anymore because it overlaps with other things. Darius isn't going to be there because he's with uh, Momocon and DragonCon now, et cetera, et cetera. So being a movie star, being a movie star, that's correct. (laughs) Yeah. uh, A lot of the people who I would see at AWA are, you know, now gradually fading away more and more and more, whether due to lack of interest or due to passing away. So uh, we'll see how it goes. This will be an interesting year for it. But until then, we'll see you next time. (laughs) 